0: Today's scripture comes from Matthew 6, verses 5 through 8, and this is from the New International Version. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. All right. How is everybody? Okay. Woo. Okay. Um, turn up number one there, if I just a little bit. There we go. Perfect. Um, okay. Yeah. I want to reiterate, baptism service, the end of this month, that Sunday, both services, we set up like in a big circle, and like we have a baptismal in the middle, and I'll talk about it in the weeks coming up. I may dedicate a Sunday towards teaching about it again. I do pretty much once a year, every summer, teach about baptism from several different perspectives, and, and the, uh, the gift it is to the community, and to the, to the gift from, from the community to the person being baptized. Um, and so it's a really beautiful thing, and, and I hope some of you are, like, are ready to, like, move forward and take that step. Um, a couple things. I think I hurt my neck sleeping because I'm older now. And so you're going to see me going like like this instead of, like, ow, like that. Um, it's something that happens in your late 30s. You lay down to go to sleep, and you hurt yourself while you're sleeping. Um, and, uh, oh, second. We're going to start this different today. And so if you can stand, I want you to stand up. I know, you just got cozy. Um, If you can't stand up, just sit nice and straight. Okay. Um, And uh, we're going to go through a prayer called the Shema. This is going to be our starting prayer today. Um, The Shema is an ancient Jewish prayer. We sung about it. It comes from Deuteronomy chapter 6. And it looks like this. And so here's what's going to happen. I'm I'm going to say some stuff for you to repeat after me at first. And then we're all going to say the rest of it together, okay? Here we go. So I want you to repeat after me Shema Yisrael. Shema Yisrael. Adonai Eloheinu. Adonai Adonai Elohad. Go. (laughs) Echad. Thank you. Okay. Now I want you to pray this prayer with me. Are you right? Okay. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all of your strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, so that last part, love your neighbor as yourself, that part's not in the original, but that's something that Jesus added, so we're going to keep it, all right? Now, that was okay. It was very American. <laughs> we're going to be first century Jewish right now, all right? Um, this is something, this is a prayer you're praying to the, to, to the rest of, of of like what they would call the diaspora, the Jews scattered abroad. Would would you pray to the world? Um, You're saying it loudly to each other um, with passion and emotion. It is like the the battle cry of like the new eschatology. All right, here we go. Ready? We're gonna say it loud. Are you ready? Here we go. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and with all of your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Thank you. You can sit down. Okay. The Shema was prayed twice a day for for thousands of years. Every morning, when the first light would start coming over the hills, uh, you would pray the Shema. Never later than 9 a.m. if you slept in. The third hour is is 9 a.m., Never later than that, you would, you would stand up and you would pray this prayer. Secondly, hold on. I started losing my voice halfway through the first service, and I was like, I was like, this is going to be a long morning. Okay, uh, they would also pray it in the evening prior to 9 p.m. Every day, twice a day. Jesus prayed it. The apostles prayed it. Um, Paul prayed it. Mary, Priscilla, Phoebe, all of them. Everyone prayed it. Every day. Twice a day. On top of that, there's another um, collection of verses called the Shimone. The Shimone," it's the Hebrew word for 18. It was 18 prayers that they would pray every single day, three times a day. Lots of praying going on. Um, not only that. Oh, hold on. But first off, the, the, the Shimon is still actually still prayed today in, uh, in Jewish synagogues. But it's actually at some point someone added a 19th verse, but it's still called Shimone the 18. Cool. Um, I don't know. To me, anyways. Um, on top of that, every day there were these prayers that they would pray for a myriad of reasons. Um, if someone lit a candle and they saw the, when they first saw the light of a candle, they would pray a specific prayer for that. When they, w- if they were to walk and they would see a river, they would pray a specific prayer upon seeing the river. See a lake, you're going to pray a prayer for the lake. You're going to, if, you see, uh, um, if you see the ocean, you're going to pray a prayer about the ocean. If you saw a comet at night, a shooting star of any kind, you would pray a prayer about that comet. Um, if, you walked, if you left your city, you would pray a prayer about leaving your city. If you entered the city, you would pray a prayer about entering into your city. Are you getting it? Every day, they would see the moon. They'd pray a prayer. As the moon changed, they would pray another prayer. And every year, uh, throughout the seasons, there'd be all these other things that would pop up that they would pray about that you only see in that particular time. Uh, they would pray um, a specific prayer upon getting ready to eat their food, a specific prayer upon using the restroom, um, a specific prayer upon seeing someone that they loved. Every day, all day, lots and lots and lots and lots of prayers. Um, one of the best that I read was when, when someone built a new piece of furniture. And the furniture's there. And the first time anyone's about to use it, if I say it's a chair, you're about to sit in the chair, you're gonna pray a prayer over the chair, a specific prayer about the chair and the gift that it is to sit, especially in a new chair. And a little bit in there is a little bit of a prayer because it's new and it may not hold you. All right? Amazing. And the whole point of this was that every moment of the day you were injecting that moment with God. Because again, the whole thing is a temple. Whole world is a temple, and you would never imagine a a priest in the temple. Maybe once a year, the priest the priest enters into the holy of holies. You would never, never even fathom that a priest who entered into the holiest place in the world um, would like get casual and just kind of let his mind trail off and like sit down in the holy of holies. That would never happen because it's a temple, and so you're aware and you're present because it's a dangerous place to be. Uh, and here we are in the temple of God, and every moment is injected by these, the, the people of God. Every moment is injected with the presence of God as a reminder, this is holy, this is a gift. This person, this thing, this action, the ocean, water, air, rain. Upon seeing the rain, you'd pray one prayer. Upon feeling the rain, when it actually hits your skin, you pray another prayer. It's an incredible way to live. Um, however... This did lend itself to some dangers um, that uh, the ancient rabbis used to write about. I want to talk about, um, oh, hold on. Oh, I didn't read this. Okay. Everything I said, just pause it. We're going we're gonna to jump to another part. Um, so this here is the second half of the Shema. And uh, it's, it's sort of, it's a command on like how this is supposed to be prayed. All right. And it goes like this. Uh, it's Deuteronomy 6, these commandments I give you today are to be upon your hearts, impress them upon your children. Talk about them when you sit down at home, talk about them when you walk along the road, when you lie down, and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands, bind them on your foreheads, write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. Um, when we, when we uh, moved into our, our house recently that we just moved into, we, I was on the porch and I found on one of the beams on the porch, there was a, a um, little metal capsule and inside of it is a little piece of Hebrew scripture. Um, lots and lots of houses have these all over the place. We had another house once that we found one of those in. Um, and uh, it's, a, it's a regular thing. You'll notice Jewish families when you go to visit Jewish families, they're going to have this on the doorpost of their house. Um, and uh, they're on the gates of the cities, of Jewish cities, Jewish towns. Um, it's all part of this thing. We're walking and we're, we're imagining that we are te- working in the temple of God and we're doing the work of God. Um, And so a lot of this, this is all part of the the song that we sang this morning, Deuteronomy 6. Now, the dangers of all of this constant prayer activity um, are written about by the ancient rabbis. And and one of the things that was a danger was that that people would start to believe that this was necessary. Um, The gifts of discipline, of spiritual discipline, and the gifts of prayer and all these, and worship, uh, these are a gift. They're not a legalistic command. It's supposed to be something for you. To receive and enjoy that fills and, and births new life in you every day and every time you practice these kinds of things. There is a danger that, that people start to think this is necessary, it becomes a bit of a tribal marker. Um, and sometimes we pray just to signal to other Christians around us that I'm one of you, right? Um uh second thing, the second danger in this is that it become begins to become mindless. Have you ever, um sure you have, if you've driven the same route every day, like to and from work, you ever get home one day, you get out of your car, and you realize I do not remember driving home. <laughs> Literally still holding my keys and my coffee mug. I do not remember that drive. I wondered if I caused any accidents. <laughs> Was not present at all. This is something your mind will do. Um it was a regular danger that the people would be leaving the gate of the city and their mind would trigger and they would just pray the prayer under their breath and keep moving and not be present. In that case, it's, it's literally taking the gift and making it the opposite. It's making it a command. Um, and once it's a command, it's no longer a gift. It's no longer... Um, enjoyable, it's no longer life-giving. At this point, you're just practicing legalistic religion. It was supposed to be this thing where you were mindful and you were present to inject God into every moment. Um, Another danger was that it would become a display, a a visible display for everyone to see. Um, And we do this as well. We'll start Bob's plumbing and we'll put a big Christian fish on the sign. Why do we do that? So the Christians driving by and be like, there's one of us right there on the back of our car. There's one of us bumper stickers with Jesus on them. There's one of us. We're not actually doing it to do the work of God. We're what they call, I guess, virtue signaling to each other. I'm one of you. We do this in all kinds of conversations. We use words that are particular uh, in the Christian community that the world doesn't use. We know about these. You've never had a business meeting. If you work a secular job where your boss has been like, "Uh, Margaret, you're just not being Edifying. It's not a thing. It's only something that we tell each other. <laughs> we don't even know necessarily what it means. Um, we just use it. Um, and so we're, in a sense, virtue signaling. We do, we do these things to gather attention and get people to look at us and say, oh, I'm one of you. Hooray for us. High fives And we're the same. Um, and so this is kind of something that we do. Um, so this had become... What this was in the first century. It had become a bit corrupt. If you remember, we talked about last week the ideas of generosity and all the, all the, all the, the, the Jewish works of generosity that were set up to be this beautiful, amazing thing and then had become um, a show, a public display of their own spirituality, which it was never supposed to be. And Jesus calls them hypocrites. Um, well, lo and behold, we come to today's passage and um, you open it up and it says this When you pray, do not be like the hypocrites. For they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly I tell you, they have received their reward in full. So um, first off, I want to highlight a few things. Uh, when you pray, Jesus is assuming, like this is what Jesus is talking about because Jesus was Jewish um, and he was, he was very pious Jew. Like he, he was in, like he did the prayers. He understood the law and all of his followers were too. And he says, when you pray, assuming that they have these rituals. We have these rituals. All of us do. Um, so take prayer and replace it with whatever thing that we do collectively, culturally. Um, as, as Christians in the 21st century, Westerners, um, there's lots of things that we do um, to worship that can take, be, that prayer can in this sentence could sort of be a placeholder for. Whatever it is. When you pray, when you gather, when you... Um, serve, um, when you sing together, um, do not be like the hypocrites for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Um, we come to this verse over here. Um, this, this word, the hypocrites, we talked about this last week. It's this Greek word, hypocrites, and hypocrites is, it's the ancient first century word for an actor, a play actor in the Colosseum, they would come down at the bottom of the, uh, of the theaters. They would, they would dress up, uh, in costume. They would put a mask over their face. They would hold it there and they would, they would wear a mask, dress up and put on a show, tell you a story. They're telling you a story. And so this is a word that basically means dressing up and telling you a story. Don't be like the people who are dressing up and are going to the religious ritual ritual and, and telling you a story about who they are don't put up with that, don't take part in it, don't have any part in it. Um, And to add to all of this, there was a specific culture in that day, like this thing that arose in the first century in Jesus' day, um, which was all centered around the art of public oration. Um, The first century was sort of the pinnacle of public oration. It's sort of, uh, it's sort of. Go- it, I think it's on its way to peak again. In today's culture, we are really into things like TED talks. Um, we're really into videos on the internet with people talking. It's a completely different medium, but it's still talking heads. It's people standing, talking, stringing words together, making arguments. Except um, in in the ancient first century, it was street theater. It was huge. People would gather, and they would they would preach arms outstretched. They would, they would make a fist and they would shake it. They would talk about politics and faith and religion, uh, the family. They'd talk about economics. They'd talk about justice. They'd talk about philosophy and theology. And these traveling preachers would go from town to town to town. And they would stand on the steps of all the temples, the highest places in the city. And they would deliver these. They would basically stand there and let everyone know, I'm about to speak. And everyone would stop what they were doing and gather around to hear them speak. This is addressed several places in scripture where people are acting like this. Um, and, uh, and actually, it's actually one of the mediums that the apostles used to spread the gospel. Uh, it was already a popular thing. We didn't invent preaching. We subverted it and took it and made it our own and did something great with it, I think. Um, and so we, they, they stand on the edge of these stairs and they deliver these speeches and they cry and they weep and they scream. And when they're done, like the people are just cheering and they would pull out coins and they would throw... Roman coins at their feet and they would gather them all up and they would say, thank you. And they'd move on to the next place and they would preach again. And people would travel from city to city to hear these preachers preach. People would run ahead of them and they would deliver messages about this person's going to speak. This person's going to speak. They would declare it in the middle of the town square. And the people would know on this day, at this time, these people are coming to speak. Um, and so you can imagine being a pious Jew in the first century and all this is going on and you appreciate some good oration. Um, why wouldn't your prayers become this kind of thing? And so what we end up with is this kind of culture spreading into the temple, into the synagogue, and the people begin standing up and delivering speeches, like prayers that are like speeches, and saying them loudly and eloquently, and people gathering to hear each other pray, and people bringing their children and saying, look, this is what it looks like to pray with passion and and, and religious fervor for God and faith, and one day you can pray like this. And it was this moving thing. And Jesus says, it's all wrong. That's not what this is at all. And so Jesus speaks to them and he says, when you pray, go into your room, close the door, pray to your father who is unseen. Then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. So Jesus comes and speaks to this system, this thing that's happening. He says, how about this? Um, And what he's actually telling them is we're going to do this the way we intended to do this in the first place. And actually the things that he says here, um, when you see them, I'm going to show them to you. When you see them, it's going to change how you view this verse and how you view a lot of the Psalms. Okay. Um, If I do this right. Um, Okay. So we're going to start in Numbers chapter 15, because while there's a lot of passages about the kind of prayers that they were going to pray and about the rhythm of prayer that they were going to have, Numbers 15 um, lays out some other things about um, tangible things that are going to remind them that are just like prayer, things that are tangible, that are also going to remind them that God is present. Um, so it's not just doing things with your mouth. Some more people are like kinesthetic uh, in their learning and in their concentration. And so they're going to not just say things with their mouth. They're going to have things to do with their hands and with their clothing. And when they get dressed in the morning, that's going to represent the kind of people that they are. So Numbers fifteen has this passage and it says this Throughout the generations to come you are to make tassels on the corners of your garments, with a blue cord on each tassel, and you will have these tassels to look at, and so you will remember all the commandments of the Lord, that you may obey them and not prostitute yourselves by chasing after the lusts of your own hearts and eyes. Then you will remember to obey all of my commands. So there's going to be this garment it's going to have tassels on it, and some of them are going to be blue. And when you pray, you're going to hold these things, and you're going to go to the next one and pray a different prayer. Go to the next one and pray a different prayer. Um, now, let's look at the words that are used here. The word tassels is this Hebrew word tzitzit. Everyone say tzitzit. It's good. All right. So um, that's the, the tassels on the end of it. Um, the word corners over here is this Hebrew word kanaf. Tzitzit. Kanaf is also the Hebrew word for wings, by the way. And watch this. Okay, David is hiding out in a cave in the Old Testament, right? And King Saul is chasing him to kill him. King Saul can't find him, doesn't think to look in the cave, apparently, and camps out outside the cave where David is sleeping. Uh, David sneaks out in the middle of the night and what does he cut off? The corner of his garment, his, his wings. Cuts his wing. Uh, it's symbolic, it's theological, it's like, try to fly now. You've lost all of your credibility and your power. Like, you have no authority in my life. Cuts the wing right off the edge of his garment. Amazing. I think it's amazing. Um, okay, so um, there's also, when this thing is built, it's going to have this garment with these corners and there's going to be tassels. This garment is going to be called the tallet. Um, if you take these two words, you flip them around, lit, tal. it's little tent. Um, so the little tent um, is, um, it's, it's, it's more describing the way you would use the garments. Let me show you a picture. Here's a father teaching his son to pray in a Jewish way. Look on his head. He's got a little box there with some Hebrew scripture in the box because you're going to tie it to your heads. Look at his left arm. He's got this wrapping around his arm and he's got a box there on his arm with Hebrew scripture in it because you're going to tie it to your hands when you pray. Um, and here he's got the prayer shawl, the talot, and on the ends are the tassels, the tzitzit. It, it's on the corners of it, the wings. And so you're going to hold it over your head, and you're going to take shelter under the wings, and you're going to pray. And he's teaching his son to do this. And then you read uh, the words of David. Once you see all this, you read the words of David, who was terrified, who was being pursued to be killed, and he wakes up in the morning, and he gets out his pen and paper, and he writes this. Let me dwell in your tent forever. Let me take refuge under the shelter of your wings. He's saying, I just want some peace. I just, I just want to stay here in prayer. I don't want to run anymore. I don't want to fight anymore. I don't want to struggle anymore. I'm tired. I'm exhausted. I just want to take my prayer shell, my tent, and I want a tabernacle with you. And what they would do is it's called closeting, and they would wrap it around their head, And they would be alone. And some of them are longer. And they would wrap it sort of around their whole body. And they would hold it like this. And they would be enclosed in this prayer closet. And they would sit there. And they would rock back and forth. And they would pray. And they would sing. And they could be honest. And there's nobody else there but them and their God. And he wanted this to last forever because he knows the moment he's done praying, he has to get up and run or fight or deal with all of the pressures at hand and all he wants to do is be one and at peace and shalom with God, the way things are supposed to be. And so in this moment, when he's wrapped up, when he's closeting, things are as they should be. And he just wants to stay there. So then we come to Matthew chapter six. But when you pray, go into your room. Some, some of your translations might well, like, literally say, go into your closet and close the door and pray to your father who is unseen. Then your father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. He says, you can't see God. God is in secret, and so if you want to gather with God, you're going to have to be in secret. And so they come, and they, they wrap it around their heads, and they stand there, and they dream about the future, and they paint these pictures of God's kingdom in their mind, and they pray with, with imagination, and they pray they pray with, um, with passion and emotion and fear and they gather together, men and women in large groups and they, they closet themselves and they pray together and they just wail. And they wish things were not like they were and they ask God for the guidance to make them as they should be. As in heaven, so shall it be on earth. That is the prayer that Jesus prays in the very next passage. Um... It helps you read this whole thing anew when you understand the first century culture. And it sort of opens you up to this whole thing. The word that Jesus uses for closet is the word tamion. It's, that's, that's what it meant. Um, it helps you read all of this and it, with an understanding that like the whole, the whole point was this, the people were supposed to be able to have this intimacy with God. God's drawing them in. He's not concerned with their spiritual um, performance. He can't get close enough to them. God says, I've I've given you this way for you to feel like you can approach the ineffable and be present and be exposed and confess. By the way, Jewish marriage was centered around this idea. Coming together and being able to be exactly who you are, exposed and naked before each other, yet receiving everything about each other. This was the entire um, mindset behind Jewish monogamy, which stood out in the world as this bizarre thing that nobody else did and practiced. For them, it was a picture of their love for God. The book of Song of Solomon, yes, it's a, it's a book about, if there's sex in it and there's, there's, you know, pining after each other, but the Jewish people read it and they said, all of this is also a, a, a perfect metaphor for God and his people. All of it is about one thing. We're in the presence of God. We're in the temple. We're here to do God's work and everything in our lives should speak about that. We should never forget at every moment of every day that we are here and we are alive and we are present with God and we are serving and God should be brought into every moment of it. And time we stand up and we make this thing about something else like gaining accolades or a show, we are literally removing God from it and making us the center of this thing and we're ruining it. We're destroying it. And so anything we can do to limit that we're going to try to do. People actually, I get a lot of questions about why don't you ever put the band on the stage? That's one of the reasons. We're with you. We're all singing together. There's, there is one member of the audience. His name is Christ Jesus. That's, who, that's who's listening to us. That's who we're singing to. Um, and I wonder if the things and the ways that our generation has made um, the center of worship, the show, laser, lights, fog, all of it. You know what I'm talking about. Like, where's, where's all of this in it? Where's Jesus? What is it all for? Is what we're doing actually accomplishing what the act was originally meant to accomplish? When we were given prayer, what was it meant to accomplish? And, and are we accomplishing that? through what we're doing. That is the question we need to be asking ourselves all the time and constantly reforming. Um, and then we go a little farther in the passage, and it says this, And when you pray, do not keep babbling like pagans, for they think they will be, they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask. So Jesus here is talking about um, the, the, the babbling of the pagan temples. Um, the word that he uses is betalo gasate. It literally translates to vain words words that don't have any meaning. And this is what they would do. They would gather, they would all line up together at certain times of the day and they would rock back and forth and they would have these prayers, these sort of meditations. They would say them over and over, but they were like small phrases and they would say it over and over and over and over. And what happens is it activates other parts of your brain and you end up sort of self-hypnotizing as a group, like group hypnotization. And it feels really good. It's honestly, and this is like a joke, but it's not a joke. It's kind of real. The the best definition of like this is like a, a modern day rave party. To what that is. There's a beat and everyone's kind of doing the same thing and everyone's moving around and everyone sort of gets in this trance and time sort of either slows down or speeds up. I don't know. I've never been to one. Um, but uh, I guess there's other things involved that would determine all that. But, but like that's what is going on. We're all sort of self-hypnotizing, but I've been to really great concerts where it's like that feeling, They're like we're all sort of saying the same things together, and there's a beat, and we're all there, and we're enjoying it. Um, and that's fine. It's, it's a lot of fun, and it's great, and it's, it's fulfilling, and it makes us feel really good, and we walk away with an experience like that was a great experience. However, there are some things that didn't happen in that experience and in this experience in the temple. Uh, first off, nobody learned anything about themselves, did they? Nobody learned anything about themselves because they didn't search the depths of their soul. Um, Second, they didn't reorientate their lives around anything, around goodness or grace or anything. What happens in this pagan temple with the babblings and the self-hypnotization as a group, like nothing there brought about any kind of refocusing on the goodness and holiness and grace of God. Um, They didn't repent of anything. They didn't come out of there saying, you know, I, I really need to change this part of my life. No, they just walked out being like, the house. I feel so refreshed. I feel really good. It triggers some chemicals that will release dopamine and stuff. And you just feel really good. That's not what's supposed to happen. That's not the goal. The goal is, is, is birthing new life in your soul. And it takes a lot of things. It takes searching your soul. It takes repentance. It takes a change. Uh, it also takes a reimagining of, of what the future world looks like in light of the work of God. In light of what we know and know about God, there should be times where you stop in prayer and you, you gather yourself together and you imagine um, a better eschatology than what you see in front of you. You imagine a kingdom that has come, and what it looks like, a family unit in your house, living under one roof that is centered around loving and serving each other, um, um, relationships with your neighbors that are, uh, that are life-giving, um, a community that is pouring itself out for each other and for the communities around it. There, is, there should be, and honestly, this is, this is soapbox. This is the big problem with modern day worship music in general. It lacks any kind of imagination. It does not talk about at all a future that any of us should be interested in at all. If there's songwriters in this room and I know you're here, this is the kind of stuff you need to be writing about, imagining a new world in light of the gospel and describing this kind of stuff. This is what should happen during prayer. This is what the Jews did regularly focused on. The the women gathered every single day. They're called the Anawin. They gather there and they stand on the temples and they proclaim um, what it will be like when justice rolls like a flood. Um, And at these pagan temple gatherings, nobody heard from God. No one walked out thinking in their minds like that was new and for me and changed how I will do this. There was no repentance involved at all. So there's this, um, there's this method of prayer that, that the church fathers, they were called the apophatic fathers. Um, they, it was sort of part of the monastic movements of hundreds of years ago, centuries ago. Um, and they prayed a specific kind of prayer. There was lots of different kinds of prayer, but one of them is very applicable to this kind of thing. It was called apophatic prayer. And in apophatic prayer, they would basically think of a a phrase and they would think of the inverse of that phrase because the truth is our definitions of these things and God's definitions of of these things do not align. And at some point we need to speak those things. If Jesus was anything, Jesus was humble. Jesus was humble. And he was not a person who stood and gave big miraculous shows. Oftentimes he heals people and says, I really need you to not go tell anyone about this. He says that several times. They never listened. Um, but he was not about the show. That's not what he did. Because the power of God is not seen in the show. The power of God is seen in the cross. Paul uses the word in Galatians where he says, he uses the word "prographo," which is, it's where we get our word photograph. Uh, Photograph. Photograph. English. American. I keep forgetting. Photograph. Uh, And it's like So he describes Jesus as the picture of God, the picture we have of God. When you think of God, I know we like to think of the Sistine Chapel. He's got like a big, white, awesome beard. He's like kind of muscular, wearing a toga, leaning in like he's powerful looking. He's got like eyes that are like, and he's there. Um, Paul says, no, when you think of God, Jesus on the cross, a relatively um, probably short Jewish minority, very dark-skinned, dark, curly-haired man, naked and suffering on a cross. That's God. And you're supposed to ponder that. Why? Because it doesn't make any sense that this is how salvation comes into the world. But the fact is, this is how resurrection enters into the world. And Paul says, when you think of God, that's what you should think of. That's why Jesus came, is to give us a new picture of God, a new picture of how this looks. And so the apophatic fathers had this, had this apophatic meditation that they would do. They would sit and they would say, God is great. And they would think of, how, of the greatness of God. But then they would say, God is, but God is not great. Because then they would think of their own definitions of greatness. And how do we, if I were to ask anybody on the street, how do you define greatness? Oh, having lots of money and charisma, being fit, um, having this and that, power and prestige and uh, all of it. That's how we define great. That is not God. Middle Eastern, dark-skinned, dark-haired man on a cross, naked, suffering. God is great. Not the kind of greatness you're used to. It flips your world upside down. God is holy. What do we think of when we think of holy? Someone who's really righteous and pious. Um, They're not tempted by sin. They're just kind of like, no, I'm not interested. No, thank you. And they kind of push it away. People throwing themselves that in. Oh, no, not for me. Thank you. That's pretty gross, though. See you. And they just walk on. And that's how we think of holy. Jesus, setting the table, prostitutes are there, um, um, religious people who are taking advantage of other people underneath them, oppressing them are there, murderers, zealots are there, all these different kinds of people are there, tax collectors, thieves, all of it, spreads the table and sits with them. And then he, he walks in from a long journey when everybody's all dirty, he takes a towel off and wipes their feet. And washes their dirty feet, something the lowest ser- uh, servant in the house would do. Um, Jesus was, his, our sin was all over him. The dis- disgustingness of our world and our life, he was, he was in it, present in it. And loving people through it all. Saying, look, I, I know this somehow meets this need of this, but there's a new way I want you to imagine. Uh, I want you to imagine um, God like me and I want you to come with me. I believe in you. And so he calls the lowest of the low, the people who are rejected and brings them in. He calls children to come in, sit on my lap and, and let me teach them. He, he calls these women to sit and gather at his feet. No rabbi would ever take women under their feet and, and teach them any of this, all, all, just, just the, the path of God. Jesus' holiness was not anything we would consider today holy if, if, we were, if all of that was true of today. I imagine if Jesus came today, he'd be rejected by most religious leaders today. And then they would sit and ponder, God is strong, the strength of God. Yeah, God is strong. When we, but when we tend to think of strong, the problem is we, we tend to think of like um, suit, red tie, commanding militaries um, behind a giant podium and a massive audience. And we can say, and we can order people around and we control the world. That's power. Well, if that's power, then God is not strong because the power of God is on the cross pouring ourselves out, body broken, blood spilled out for those around us. Um, and that bringing about new life and reconciliation to God and justification and, and um, rebirth. That's strength, apparently. As revealed by God. As Paul says, that's how you picture God. And so they would have this tradition of sitting and thinking about all the ways that we are just wrong about our, even the definitions of the words that we use when we hold them up into the light of Jesus, we're like, oh, that was wrong. And then, so I want to end this today with this quote by Eugene Peterson. He wrote a while back and it, it, it always stuck in my head. It goes like this. Prayer is subversive activity. It involves a more or less open act of defiance against any claim by the current regime. As we pray, slowly but surely, not culture, not family, not government, not job, not even the tyrannous self can stand against the quiet power and creative influence of God's sovereignty. Every natural tie of family and race, every willed commitment to person and nation is finally subordinated to the rule of God. Part of prayer in the definition should just be it's, it's declaring Jesus is Lord in a thousand different ways. I know we, we like to take the statement Jesus is Lord and put it on t-shirts and bumper stickers um, and strip it of all its meaning. Uh, uh, but, but whoever is Lord in your life is the person who you look to as your leader, the one who you look to, who you want to be like, who you serve, who you have allegiance to above all other people, um, whose teachings you listen to. Um, And anytime any other Lord rises up and says, and says, you know, here's something you should think about. I think this would be a great way to go. You look at that Lord and see that, well, that contradicts this. And if you were to go along with anything that they're teaching, that what you're saying is Jesus is not Lord. I think most Christians today say Jesus is Lord, but Jesus is definitely not Lord. When Jesus is Lord, um, all of this comes under his rule. Our entire life, every decision, every relationship, all of it comes under the rule of Jesus. This is the vision of, of the church. That our every decision would be subject to the will and the rule of Jesus Christ. Every moment, which actually turns out to look opposite of every way we see power and might and holiness displayed in the world. It changes everything. And so we're going to take some time right now and have communion. Our communion servers, you guys can go ahead and take the elements and spread around the room. Communion is a picture um, of the might and the power and the holiness, all of it. It's the picture of God. Body broken for you, blood spilled for you, so that you can find healing and reconciliation. This is it. And so we take some time in prayer quietly to ourselves, and we get honest. We admit the ways that we have not lived up to the name we've been given and we repent of those things and then we step in line with others and we take the bread and we rip it off and we dip it in the wine and we eat it and we say, Father, I take your gospel deeper inside of me again and again and again. Touch the places of my life that have not yet been touched. Become more and more every week Lord of my life. Every day. And I would recommend you, you ponder the ways in which you could bring these rituals of prayer into your life. The Shema is something that um, I have a few friends. They, they literally say the Shema every morning and every night just like the Jewish people do. Um, I, I know someone else who has a regular ritual of, yeah, you guys can come on down and, and spread around the room. It would be great. Um, who have a ri- regular ritual of like, and I did this for about a year and a half. Like every morning when you get up, the first words out of your mouth should be sort of all the things you're thankful for. Just set in the telling for the day. So there's all these gifts that God has given us, the spiritual disciplines, and that's the things we've been studying over here on our Sunday morning groups. Get into all of that. Um, so we're gonna take some time and we're gonna pray and we're gonna take communion. Let's do it. Father, thank you for who you are, who you're making us into, who you want us to be. We love you, Father. I ask that you would help us more and more to make Jesus Lord in our lives. There are so many so many areas of each of our lives that Jesus is really not Lord. Help us to change those and repent of those things and be made whole. Thank you. In your name. Amen. Take some time. Talk to Jesus.